294 days. That is the length of the time that women's basketball star and Olympic champion Brittany Griner has been detained in Russia. That stint included a recent move to a penal colony in Yavas, which traces its roots to a gulag labor camp and has been described as having slave-like conditions. Greiner was sentenced to serve nine years there on minor drug charges until today. I'm glad to be able to say that Brittany's in good spirits. She, uh, she's relieved to finally be heading home. And the fact remains that she's lost months of her life, experienced the needless trauma. And she deserves space, privacy, and time with her loved ones to recover and heal. Thank you, everybody, for your support. Um, and today is just a happy day for me and my family. So um, I'm going to smile right now. <laughs> um, thank you. Minutes before making that public announcement, the Biden administration greeted Sherelle Greiner, Brittany's wife, in the Oval Office. Sherelle walked in expecting to hear the latest updates on Brittany's case. But instead, President Biden broke the news that the operation to bring Brittany home was underway. Biden and Sherelle Greiner called Brittany together just before 8 a.m. today. According to White House officials, the president's first words to Brittany Greiner were, it's Joe Biden. Welcome. Welcome home. And she was en route in real time. Russian state television posted this video of Greiner boarding a private plane in Moscow headed to Abu Dhabi on her way to the United States. The UAE and Saudi Arabia helped negotiate the deal with Russia to release Greiner. We are keeping an eye on Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio while we await Greiner's arrival. She had this exchange with a person on board, on board the flight to the UAE. What's your mood? Happy. You fly back home. To the U.S. To the U.S. Okay. Everything will be fine. In order to get Griner on that plane starting that long trek back home, the United States had to cut a deal with Russia, exchange one prisoner for another. We get Griner back, and in return, we give Russia this man, Victor Boot, the man with the gray mustache you see in this video carrying that manila envelope. He's walking away from a private plane, and he's walking toward Brittany Griner, who you can see on the left in that red jacket. This is the prisoner swap that happened on a UAE tarmac this morning. The Biden administration has made clear that they were involved in, quote, painstaking and intense negotiations to bring Griner home. And it became clear in the past two days that despite the White House's attempts to also bring back Paul Whelan, a former Marine imprisoned in Russia on suspicion of spying, that Russia would only release Brittany Griner, and only in exchange for notorious Russian arms dealer Victor Boot, who is known as, quote, the merchant of death. In 2011, a New York jury convicted Boot of conspiring to kill Americans and conspiring to provide material support to terrorists and arms trafficking. He was arrested in Thailand in 2008 after attempting to sell millions of dollars worth of weapons to a terrorist group in Colombia, telling them, quote, we have the same enemy. Following Boots' conviction, then-Attorney General Eric Holder said, Today, one of the world's most prolific arms dealers is being held accountable for his sordid past. Victor Boots' arms trafficking activity and support of armed conflicts have been a source of concern around the globe for decades. Today, he faces the prospect of life in prison for his efforts to sell millions of dollars worth of weapons to terrorists for use in killing Americans. Boot never faced life in prison, though. During his sentencing hearing in 2012, he told the judge he, quote, never intended to kill anyone and, quote, God knows the truth. He also shouted at the prosecution, it's a lie that he never sold weapons to kill Americans. When Boot was sentenced to 25 years in prison, which was the mandatory minimum, his lawyer told reporters he was 
grateful to the judge. And now Victor Boot is back home in Moscow after 10 years behind bars in America. Boot grew up in Soviet Tajikistan. He was conscripted into the Soviet army, and then he went on to the Military Institute of Foreign Languages in Moscow, which is a place that is notorious for churning out intelligence officers. Boot became a polyglot, speaking English and French and Portuguese and Arabic and Persian fluently, in addition to his native Russian. Over the course of his career as a transnational criminal, he sold weapons to sanctioned groups in Angola, Rwanda, Liberia, Sierra Leone, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Eventually, Boot started feeling the pressure of his trade. He apparently half-jokingly told a Time magazine reporter in 2003 he was, quote, second only to Osama, as in bin Laden, on America's most wanted list. After he was arrested in Bangkok in 2008 in a sting operation, Boot received his prison sentence and told The New Yorker, they will try to lock me up for life, but I'll get back to Russia. I don't know when, but I'm still young. Your empire will collapse and I'll get out of here. And now he is indeed out, exchanged for an American citizen whose great crime in Russia was possession of less than one gram of hashish oil. She says she forgot she left in a suitcase. So the question now is, why did Russia push so hard to get Victor Boot back from the U.S. in, in one of the most uneven prisoner swaps in recent memory? And does he pose a threat now that he's back home in Moscow? Joining us now is Karine Jean-Pierre, White House Press Secretary. Karine, thanks so much for being here. I know that there is, a, we're, we're dealing with sort of two conflicting emotions here. One, I think most Americans are overjoyed. Some Americans, a small pocket, are not as happy that Paul Whelan is here, not uh, on board the same plane, but Brittany Griner is coming home. And the conflicting emotion that Victor Boot has been released. Let's first talk about how this was negotiated. Can you give us a sense of the timeline uh, in which this was negotiated? How long ago you were talking about swapping Griner for boot? So let me just first say, Alex, and thank you so much for, for having me on. And you kind of touched on this in your opening. Uh, today is a good day because Brittany Griner is, is coming home to her family who loves her, her teammates who care about her, and also a country who was marveled uh, by her strength and her courage. And I think that is important. She's an American citizen uh, that was wrongfully detained, and the, and the president kept his promise on bringing her home. So just to give you a little bit of the timeline, as you're asking me, Alex, six months ago, back in July, uh, Secretary Blinken uh, came out publicly, and he talked about very clearly how we were in extensive negotiations. Uh, with Russia on looking at different avenues uh, to secure Britney's release. And that is what you've been seeing these past several uh, months. And most recently in the past several weeks, uh, it was clear that there was a deal that was, uh, that was uh, going to be happening for Britney's release. But sadly, regrettably, uh, Russia was not uh, being uh, negotiating in good faith uh, with Paul Whelan because they categorized him very differently. Uh, they saw him totally illegitimately, uh, charged him for uh, something that, again, that was illegitimate. And, and so, therefore, we were not able to secure uh, his release. And so I understand. I understand the president understanding. He said this this morning, how much of a difficult day uh, this is for the Whalen family. But we want to make it very clear. The president wants to make
make it very clear that he will continue to make sure uh, to bring Paul home safely and secure his release. It does not stop today. It will continue as it has for the past several months. And it's not just Paul, but we're talking about Americans, uh, not just in Russia, but in other countries who are being wrongfully detained that this president has promised to do everything that he can to return them home, just like he did with Paul, uh, with uh, Brittany Griner and just like he did with Trevor Reed in April. Were the Russians always, did they always have their sights set on Victor Boot? And did you have to give any kind of heads up to your predecessors in the Obama administration for whom the conviction of Boot, as you know, we quoted Eric Holder, it was a big deal conviction at the time. Did you have to talk to them about what you were about to do? Or did you feel the so need let to? Me just, so let me just say, not going to get into the details of negotiations and what steps were taken. Uh, not going to go into that uh, for just obvious reasons, because we are still very much working very hard uh, to get uh, Paul, uh, Paul uh, released and, and his release secured. Uh, I'll say this. This is not a decision that this president, that President Biden made lightly. Uh, he believed this was an opportunity uh, to bring Brittany home, and he wanted to make sure that was we we're able to do that. I want to make it sure, very also very clear to the American people, your your uh, your viewers that are watching. Uh, there was two options here. There was an option to br- bring Brittany home, or no one. That's what we were dealing with: either bring Brittany home or no one at all. And so we decided, the president decided to bring Brittany home. Look, when it comes to our security, uh, the president, we are always, our administration is going to be vigilant on making sure that we protect our national security and we will act swiftly when needed. And we will take the steps again when needed to do that. As we have done these past several months, as we've done throughout his administration, we did as we did yesterday, as we're going to do today, as we did, as we're going to do tomorrow. Uh, So again, this was an opportunity to bring Brittany home safely. It was either Brittany or no one. When you say Brittany or no one, it makes me um, (laughs) skeptical that this is the overture to better relations or a better negotiation conduit with Russia. But I'll ask you the question, do you think the fact that the U.S. and Russia were able to negotiate this swap is indicative of relations that may have the possibility of repair in terms of the broader portfolio of interests that the U.S. and Russia share? No, I, I, I understand the question, and I was asked this question in the briefing room as well today. Look, this this deal was specific and very and very targeted at uh, Brittany because we knew we had a deal and we knew we were able to secure her release. And so we're focusing. That's our focus right now as it relates to anything else. I know there are arms deal. You know, I know there's uh, Ukraine. Uh, those those things are very different uh, right now. What we wanted to do is make sure that the president, he wanted to keep his promise when it comes to American citizens, citizens who are wrongfully detained, doing everything that we can to bring them home. Again, we did that with Trevor Reed. We've done that uh, with other uh, wrongfully detained U.S. citizens uh, that have been released under this administration. And today we were able to do that with Brittany, Brittany Griner. One more. Does the president have any plans to greet Brittany at the White House? What's the what, what's the ticker tape parade going to look like? 
So don't have anything to preview. As you know, the president, uh, as you stated in your beginning of your opening, the president, Sherelle, uh, also the vice president and Secretary Blinken had an opportunity to speak uh, directly to Brittany as she was flying uh, back home. And he said, welcome, uh, welcome home, uh, welcome home to Brittany. And so and they also said she was in good spirits. Don't have anything yet to share on that. Uh, but obviously, we are thrilled that she is back and we are going to continue uh, to fight for every Every American that is wrongfully detained. 294 days. It's great that she's finally coming home. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre, thanks as always for joining us. Thanks, Alex. Now let's turn to Michael McFall, former U.S. ambassador to Russia and NBC News international affairs analyst. Michael, it's great to have you. There's a lot to try and understand here. I, I guess the first is, what do you make of this arrangement here? Um, there, It is asymmetrical, undoubtedly, but both Brittany Griner and Victor Boot are effectively celebrities in their respective countries. The Russians, it appears, know a lot about Victor Boot, and he is more known there than he is here, obviously, in the way that Brittany Griner is an important asset, if you will, in terms of American culture and sports. Uh, what do you make of the deal? I support the deal. I think it's fantastic that Brittany Griner is coming home. Uh, these are hard calls. I was in the government. I was at the White House when uh, he was convicted, Victor Boot. You asked about the Obama administration officials. I'm one of them. This guy's a really, really bad guy. Uh, as you rightly hinted at, probably connected to intelligence services. And they've been trying to get him out ever since I was at the White House. And when I was the U.S. ambassador to Russia, Putin has wanted him out for a long, long time. Uh, the Biden team and ultimately the president had to make that really hard choice that you two were just discussing. They got to the point in the negotiations where it was either one for one or nobody. And the president and his team, but the president ultimately had to make this decision, decided, I want to take that deal. It's not an easy deal. Uh, it is a tragedy that Paul Whelan is still in jail. He's been there for a long time, wrongly. It's a tragedy, by the way. Mark Fogel is still in jail. They keep saying the other Americans. I actually happen to know one of them personally because he was a teacher to my kids when I was a U.S. ambassador. He shouldn't be in jail either. But it, we had a choice to make and they decided to take the deal. I think it's the right decision. And maybe it will lead to other decisions down the road, other trades that they might be able to make. What, what does boot mean to Putin in terms of the symbolism of this? Because there is some talk that he was close to senior advisors to Putin, many of which it sounds like have been sidelined in recent months over the war in Ukraine. Is this a peace offering in a way to them? I'm just trying to look for a little Kremlinology in terms of what this signals about Putin's power. So... You know, Putin himself came from the KGB, right? Remember, he is a, a former intelligence officer, but you're never former. You're part of a special club. And when they talk about each other, they say, we never leave anybody behind. And in my own negotiations about Victor Boot many, many years ago, you could tell that this was important for Putin personally, that they would get him out of jail. Uh, and therefore, this is a huge victory for Vladimir Putin. You're exactly right, Alex. He is a very well-known figure inside Russia. They think they use the phrase wrongfully detained, too, back in their country. And so this is a fantastic win for Vladimir Putin, whether it's related to other intelligence officers paying him off. I've seen a lot of speculation about that. I think this is actually important to Putin. And from his perspective, this was a very good deal. What did Griner mean to Putin? Because back in the 1930s, 
The Soviet Union used anti-racist propaganda to lure African-Americans to come live in America. You know, we have a history with Russia where Russia capitalizes on social unrest to make America look bad. Brittany Griner uh, has been somewhat of a, a notorious figure uh, among certain conservative Republicans who do not like her, her criticism of the United States by bending a knee during the uh, Pledge of Allegiance uh, or during the— uh, the opening ceremonies of sports games. Right. I wonder if you think that she had a symbolic place in Russia, given the history on, uh, with the U.S. and Russia on race. It's an interesting question. My, I don't know the answer to it. I, I think probably not. I think we're over speculating here. I think when when she was arrested at the airport, they got lucky uh, because of her mistake. And they knew that they had somebody that they could leverage to get somebody out like Victor Boot. I think that's the way they were thinking about it. The other historical stuff, and maybe that played a role, but I don't think so. I think they finally thought that we finally have somebody that we can get Boot out of jail. And it turned out to be true. And so you think this was basically all the long game to get Victor Boot back? I do. I uh it's been a really long game. I was in government almost a decade ago. They were every single meeting that Sergei Lavrov, their foreign minister, had with either Secretary Clinton or Secretary Kerry when I was in the government. His name came up. They wanted him and Putin personally wanted him out. I think that's important for people to understand. Putin personally wanted him out. And so when they arrested Greiner, I think they figured out we finally have the ticket to release our guy. Wow. What do you think this signals? You know, I was asking Karine Jean-Pierre whether this signals any sort of I'm not going to say warming relations, but is this a future avenue for negotiations down the line? I'm not sure that it sounded like it was. How do you make what do you make of the fact that this negotiation even happened at this moment when U.S.-Russia relations are the worst they've been since the Cold War? So tragically, I think we've gotten pretty good at at, 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 at stovepiping different issues, right? Because we have to. Because if you linked everything, uh, you would never get anything done. So this is a good sign in that respect. We're getting this deal done. Maybe we can stovepipe arms control negotiations because I think we need to do that as well. But it doesn't mean it's going to lead to better negotiations over Ukraine or any other issue for that matter. I, I see little linkage between this breakthrough, a very positive breakthrough, and the rest of the agenda, which, as you said, you know, I think you got to go deep into the Cold War, maybe all the way back to 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis, to remember a time when relations have been so bad. This day, a great day in and of itself, is not going to change that overall dynamic. You know, Mike, you bring up the really important fact. Diplomacy is hard. Hostage negotiations are difficult. This was a really tough call for the Biden administration. And as Karine Jean-Pierre said, it was either Brittany or no one. Given that, it seems like they made a tough call, but maybe the right call to get her back because it wouldn't happen otherwise. Former U.S. ambassador to Russia and NBC News international affairs analyst Michael McFall. It's great to see you as always. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, bye-bye. Still ahead tonight, the Justice Department is making clear that it means business when it comes to getting back all of the documents that Donald Trump took back with him to Mar-a-Lago. We will talk to former U.S. Attorney Barb McQuaid about that and unionized employees of The New York Times walked out today as part of a work stoppage as they negotiate on a contract. But what would happen if almost everyone behind the paper record went on a full strike? Stay with us.
Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Padgett, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe. Former President Donald Trump is facing 91 indictment charges, yet he remains the Republican frontrunner. On MSNBC's podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump, veteran prosecutors Andrew Weissman and Mary McCord break down the biggest legal developments and how they could alter the election. Never had a president who engaged in this kind of conduct who's running for office. He is using the criminal cases for his own campaigning. Search for Prosecuting Donald Trump wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Tuesday. Late this afternoon, we got two pieces of breaking news in the Mar-a-Lago document saga. First off, we learned the special master, the independent arbiter requested by Team Trump to sift through all the documents and slow down the process. The special master, Raymond Deary, is officially off the job. After the 11th Circuit struck down the special master's appointment last week, we were all waiting around to see if the former president would appeal or asked the court to temporarily halt its decision while Trump's team figured out its next move. Today, Team Trump made it official. No appeal. Which, given its record thus far, is worth noting. Team Trump is actually going to accept defeat here. Now, as a result of this, the Justice Department will be able to access 13,000 government records that they seized from Mar-a-Lago. Things finally seem to be moving along here. At last. And yet. There is still the unanswered question about whether there are more documents out there. It is an open question, and it is a pressing one. The Justice Department has spelled out in court filings how it remains concerned that more classified records may indeed be missing. We have reports that a top DOJ official reached out to Team Trump this fall, essentially saying, we don't think your client gave us back everything. And the DOJ has good reason to be concerned here. Remember that in May, the DOJ subpoenaed Team Trump for all remaining classified records. The next month, government officials took a field trip to Mar-a-Lago to meet with Trump's attorneys to see about those missing documents. And it was at that meeting that Trump lawyer Christina Bob signed a sworn statement that to the best of her knowledge, there were no more classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, which was totally untrue. The FBI would end up raiding the president's beach club a few months later and finding a lot more classified documents. And that Trump lawyer, Christina Bob, she herself has now lawyered up. She is no longer involved in defending Trump from investigations and is herself reportedly under scrutiny from the Department of Justice. Then yesterday, The Washington Post reported that Trump's team has, in recent weeks, unearthed two additional classified documents from a storage unit in West Palm Beach. I mean, if you're the DOJ This whole thing has gotten almost clownishly frustrating, which is why the news tonight would seem to make quite a bit of sense. We have learned this evening that the government is running out of patience and is now escalating its quest for possible missing classified documents. Here's the Washington Post scoop. Prosecutors have urged a federal judge to hold Donald Trump's office in contempt of court for failing to fully comply with a May subpoena to return all classified documents in his possession. The Post reports it is a sign of how contentious the private talks have become over whether the former president still holds any secret papers. 
In recent days, Justice Department lawyers have asked U.S. District Court Judge Beryl Howell to hold Trump's office in contempt. That is according to people who spoke on the condition of anonymity to describe sealed court proceedings. The Post reports the judge has not yet held a hearing or ruled on that request. The Justice Department wants a sworn written statement from Trump's lawyers attesting to the fact that all of the documents have been returned. But complying with that pretty straightforward request appears to be something that no one on Trump's legal team seems willing to do. And hey, can you blame them? Joining us now is Barb McQuaid, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Barb, thanks so much for being here. This is file this development under most surprising, least surprising thing ever. Trump's lawyers don't want to have to formally sign an affidavit saying they believe what their client is saying. Um, my question to you is, what is the practical implication of contempt of court when we talk about Team Trump here? Yeah, in the in this context, where it, they're actually seeking contempt against the office of the former president, um, it, perhaps because they can't figure out who is the person who is the custodian of records, because Donald Trump will not designate someone as the custodian of records. So when it is an entity like that, as opposed to an individual person, you can't really jail the person to coerce their compliance. Instead, typically what you'll see is a fine, maybe a daily fine until they comply. There was a similar contempt order, you may recall, in the attorney general's case against the Trump organization when they were refusing to sit for depositions. And the court in that case imposed daily fines until they complied. So I would expect something like that here. Uh, you know, when it's an individual, you can jail them. When it's an entity, you can fine them. Is the fine significant, though? I mean, is it something that's going to, I mean, Donald Trump's facing a lot of fines right now. Is this something that will hurt? <laughs> The number the judge picks is supposed to be something that will provide that inducement, especially when it's racking up every day. It's sort of like when you've got the overdue library book, you know, after the first day, it's not such a big deal. It's second day, uh, but then it keeps escalating. And so it would really be up to the judge to fashion a number that would cause a little bit of pain on the Trump uh, entity here uh, so that it's not just something he can shrug at and, and ignore. Well, yeah, to borrow the metaphor of the missing library book, I mean, the question is whether anybody knows where the <laughs> library book or books actually are. I guess I wonder, Barb, why not just apply for a search warrant here? Or is this uh, an overture to doing just that? Uh, you know, I imagine that the Justice Department would very much like to do that because the Trump team clearly has demonstrated that it can't be trusted. As you said, they they, they swore they were giving everything back in May. Uh, and turns out not, not only uh, did they not give everything back, there are 13,000 documents uh, still in the basement. And so I think a search warrant is what they would love to do. But you can't just get a search warrant based on speculation that documents will be found somewhere. You need probable cause that they would be found in a particular place based on facts. The Fourth Amendment requires particularity when you are seeking a warrant. So you have to have at least some factual basis, enough for probable cause to believe that the documents will be found at a particular place. It, it seems very likely to me that the Justice Department knows what's missing. You know, there's been talk about a letter from Kim Jong-un. There's been talk about a note that Barack Obama left in the desk for Donald Trump when he became president. Um, and you know, all of these documents that are classified are typically stored on a server and printed out. Uh, but somebody keeps track of that. These are controlled documents. They aren't just flying around. So they they know what's missing. 
And so that is likely what is causing them to say, you know, you had all these other documents and these ones are missing. Seems to us they're likely somewhere that you know about. Uh, but they have to be a little more precise than that. So, for example, in the Mar-a-Lago case, there was evidence from the valet that there were documents and that the boxes were moved, et cetera. They would really need a witness like that to be able to say, I think the documents are at Trump Tower or Bedminster or wherever. But don't they, I mean, they don't they sort of have that? It's, it sounds like they have a current Trump staffer and his wife, both employed by President Trump down at Mar-a-Lago, who spoke to a grand jury about this West Palm Beach storage unit where they ultimately, this outside firm, found two classified documents. Isn't that enough to get a search warrant at this point to actually have the DOJ search that West Palm Beach storage unit rather than this other outside firm? It could be. There would have to be a probable cause that documents are in that storage locker. It may simply be that they identified, you know, there is a storage locker. Maybe it's in there. He keeps stuff in there. Stuff came from there from the White House. It really would have to be you know, some evidence, reasonable grounds to believe that classified documents are there. My guess is the Justice Department is working very hard to develop probable cause to get into all of these places. There has been some reporting that they've been interviewing witnesses and asking witnesses at the grand jury questions about whether they ever saw Donald Trump with documents. There was even reporting that he would lug it around on his plane from time to time and uh, sift through documents while he was on the plane. Did that mean that those documents got brought to Mar-a-Lago, Bedminster, uh, Trump Tower or some other place. So um, I'm sure they're working to find probable cause. And if they get it, uh, no doubt they will go back and get another search warrant. Hey, one last one for you, Barb. Now that Raymond Deary is off the case, the DOJ does not need to wait until this extended special master review is complete. They have a lot of evidence thus far. Do you feel like they're going to try and track down all these missing documents? Or do you think an indictment could actually be coming soon? What of Jack Smith, the special counsel who's overseeing this? I think both of those things can be true, Alex. Uh, you know, there are two things, goals here that the Justice Department has in mind. One is collecting evidence for a criminal case, but the other is equally, if not more important, and that is getting back all of these documents that are secret and top secret. Those documents are defined as uh, the the release of which would cause exceptionally grave harm to the national security of the United States. Every second those are out there in the world is a danger to national security, a source, a method, a secret, the location of uh, weapons and other kinds of things. They very much want those back. But that does not preclude them from going forward. And I do think that the return of these documents is kind of a, a very big step that needed to uh, to take place before they could file criminal charges. Now that they have those documents, they'll need to review them. Um, but I think that uh, moving forward with an indictment becomes that much faster now that they have it. And it seems that they'll have to make a charging decision. Uh, but if they have the evidence to do that, it seems that most of the work has now been done. All right. Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Thanks as always, Barb. Great to see you. Thanks, Alex. We have much more ahead this hour. Power has been restored to customers in North Carolina's Moore County after two substations were intentionally attacked by gunfire. But questions remain over the potential right-wing extremism that may have inspired that attack. We will talk to former FBI official Frank Figluzzi about all that. But next, union employees of the New York Times staged a walkout today, and some are warning that they may go even further if their requests are not met. That's ahead. Stay with us. Yeah. 
Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The Weeknd. We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening. It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in. Conversation we begin and that you continue all week long. The Weeknd, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. It was called Not the New York Times. It was a real newspaper, and it was a real newspaper length, dozens of pages, and it looked exactly like the New York Times. But it had headlines like, Armed Vatican Troops Seize West Bank, and Dog Surrenders to the Police, and New Medicare Proposals, Take My Life, Please. The cooking section taught you how to cook a bat. And then there was an advice column that asked readers to write in for dating advice from North Korean dictator Kim Il-sung. The paper was a strike paper. It was a parody. And it was published in 1978 by humorists and employees of the real New York Times, while their paper was shut down during a strike. Newsstands throughout New York City closed down last night as a strike hit the city's three major daily newspapers, The New York Times, The Daily News, and The New York Post. New York is now without its major daily newspapers, and there are some fears here that the strike could develop into a long one. While they argue the biggest daily paper in the biggest city in the country is The News World, published by the Unification Church, which is headed by the Reverend Sun Myung Moon, the Korean evangelist. Both the unions and the publishers are giving the impression they're ready to settle down into a power struggle. Both sides could be bluffing, but if they're not, The New York newspaper strike could be long, bitter, and expensive. Today, more than 40 years later, a thousand New York Times employees walked off the job again. They have not had a working contract since March of 2021. Negotiations over that contract between the paper's management and the union have broken down, primarily over disputes about pay, health care, and salary floors for the paper's lowest paid employees. The CEO of the Times wrote a memo last night rebutting some of the union's claims. She cited what she called the clear commitment the paper has shown to negotiate their way to a contract that provides Times journalists with substantial pay increases, market-leading benefits, and flexible working conditions. She wrote that she was disappointed that the union had taken, quote, such drastic action. But union members today were not shy about how their actions could get more drastic if their demands are not met. Union member and veteran reporter Michael Powell told NPR that today's walkout was an absolute necess- absolutely necessary shot across the bow. He continued, each month that goes by, they are taking more money out of our pockets. To be clear, today's walkout was not a strike. It was a 24-hour work stoppage. Tomorrow, New York Times employees will be back at work. A work stoppage has a start time and an end date. A strike, however, is indefinite. Back in 1978, the last time the New York Times went on a full indefinite strike, it lasted for 88 days. That was more than a decade before the New York Times was online, and the core of that strike was the staff that worked the printing presses. So there was really literally no paper at all. 
When the strike finally ended above the masthead on the front page of the first new copy of the paper in months, the paper advertised a special 88 days in review news summary to catch everyone up on everything they'd ha- that had happened since the New York Times last published. In that time, one pope died and another was elected. Two Soviet spies were sentenced to 50 years in prison. Three congressmen were indicted. And perhaps most topical, the New York Yankees won the World Series. The New York uh, newspaper strike is over at long last. We got the Daily News and the Times this morning just the way we did before the strike began back in August. August. The first bundles of papers were quickly delivered to the loading docks. Trucks rushed them to newsstands. Readers were delighted. Like an action. Feels fantastic. It's like, you know, a void in my life is filled. It's hard to imagine what our world would look like today without the New York Times for an indefinite period of time. But if these negotiations don't resolve soon, that might be in our future. So here is to hoping they can work this one out and that no one will need to repost cooked bat recipes anytime soon. Five days after an attack on a power station in Moore County, North Carolina, left 45,000 homes without electricity, power has finally been restored to all those county residents. But that good news comes as we are learning some troubling new details about what motivated that attack in the very first place. Investigators now say they're pursuing two theories, right-wing extremists in online forums encouraging attacks on critical infrastructure and a potentially related theory about attacks on the local LGBTQ population. Now, we still don't know for sure what motivated that attack, but here is what we do know. Since January, the Department of Homeland Security has been ringing the alarm about the rising threat of right-wing domestic extremists attacking the U.S. power grid. After Trump lost the 2020 election, the FBI began warning that white supremacists online had begun discussing shooting up power grids in order to create unrest, with the eventual goal of creating a, quote, fascist society. That was more than just idle chatter. In August of 2021, a group of neo-Nazis in Idaho was charged with plotting to attack power stations in the Northwest. In February 2022, three more right-wing extremists pleaded guilty to terrorism charges after conspiring to attack the U.S. power grid and, in the words of the Justice Department, stoke division in our society all in the name of white supremacy. Since 2017, attacks and vandalism on electrical infrastructure in the U.S. have been steadily rising. This year alone, there have been more than 100 attacks on the grid. And now, amid that rise in violent threats from fringe right-wing conspiracy theorists, the former president of the United States is going farther than he ever has to embrace fringe right-wing conspiracy theorists. On Tuesday, former President Donald Trump, hot off his dinner with a white nationalist and an anti-Semitic hip-hop star, hosted another group of right-wing extremists at his Florida home. And this time, it was boosters of the far-right QAnon conspiracy who got their very own state dinner in Trumpland, a fundraiser that featured a so-called documentary about child sex trafficking. This is how Trump addressed that room full of conspiracy mongers. You are incredible people, and you're doing unbelievable work, and we just appreciate you being here, and I hope you're going to be back, and back many times and for many years. But the job they've done, and that this group in particular has done, it's really astounding. Joining us now to discuss all this is Frank Fugluzzi, former FBI Assistant Director of Counterintelligence and an MSNBC national security analyst. Frank, for people who 
have not connected the dots between white supremacy and a fascist society and taking down the power grid. Can you illuminate the connection there? Yeah, they, they are adherence to something called accelerationist theory. The theory is simply that you can accelerate the takedown of society by creating the kind of chaos that gives an advantage to people trained in weapons and survival uh, uh, skills. So the, the theory goes something like this. The status quo is maintained by the government because the electricity stays on. It normalizes everyone and equalizes everyone. If you literally pull the plug on the power... Then society falls into chaos, the government becomes powerless and dismantled, and people with guns who practice in the woods on weekends and their militia groups can take over. It's a very uh, anti-black, anti-minority, fascist th thing. And here's, here's the thing. Here's what's produced all these DHS bulletins recently. They're, the government is seeing this play out in chat rooms, literally to include instructions being issued this past summer on how to take out power substations and the encouragement that it happened simultaneously across the United States so that it would all happen at once and create chaos. The, you, in addition to having, I mean, the information is available online, but in terms of the skills needed to take down an electrical grid, I mean, I would assume those are fairly sophisticated, right? You have to have some knowledge of how this works on a practical level and then have the marksmanship to be able to do so with a gun. It's true. We shouldn't be fooled by what looks on its face to be a pretty primitive thing. Cut the bolt lock on a gate, go in and shoot at some equipment. That may sound simple, but you need to know what to shoot at. You need to, how to, need to know how to shoot very well, likely with long guns and sniper uh, rounds, which is what we believe happened here. It certainly happened back in California in 2013, still unsolved, by the way. And, and this involved two stations. So, you know, likely more than one person's doing this. And it's a, it's a group that's knowledgeable, trained in weapons, has read the instructions, cased the place, surveilled it, knows when security patrols are there and are not there. And it's pointed out something law enforcement's known for a long time. Our infrastructure is very vulnerable. And as much as we spend millions to bolster the cyber wall, the firewall, the cyber uh, process around our power and utility grids, we need to be thinking far more simply about the physical, physical security of our substations in the hands of private companies like Duke Energy. We need to get our act together there. And we need to absolutely treat as criminal the posting of these dangerous instructions with the exhortation that you action them to take down the government. Well, I would also wonder in terms of catalytic events, how meaningful it is that the former president of the United States who called a mob to an insurrection at the Capitol is now down at Mar-a-Lago meeting with white supremacists and anti-government conspiracy theorists. I mean, from an FBI perspective, is that catalytic? Does, is there a before and after you see in terms of recruitment or interest in anti-government activity when you have a figure with that much power meeting with like-minded conspiracy theorists. The data is there to support that. The FBI directors testified on the Hill now numerous times about the leading threat. It's hate-based violence. Um, he's seen a huge spike in, in domestic terrorism cases, even when you solve for and account for all of the, the cases involving just January 6, you're still seeing a spike in the threatening, dangerous ideologies that lead to violence and people planning violence. So 
the former president gives this license. He, he says to them, I'm, I'm the guy that's got your back. And so as long as that leadership is there, that radicalizing figure is still there, still loud and proud, we're going to see this threat continue. As, as long as he's there literally saying you are incredible people doing unbelievable work. These are people promoting the Pizzagate conspiracy theory that led a man with a, an assault rifle to a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. Frank Figluzzi, former FBI assistant director of counterintelligence and an MSNBC national security analyst. Thanks, as always, Frank, for your time tonight. Sure. We will be right back. That does it for us tonight. Primary season is here. If you've got voting questions, we've got voting answers. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote. You'll find when and how to vote in your state's primary election. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote today.